Hello, everyone. Everyone, Pastor John English and Pastor Brandon back with you to talk about the law and gospel a little bit more. We had our first video last week where we introduced the theological categories. We talked about how law and gospel are tied to covenants, particularly the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. We talked about the divisions of the law. When, when the Bible speaks about law, it speaks about different things. And so we want to be very precise in how we're trying to think and how we're trying to interpret the Bible. Today we want to keep going down that discussion of uh, law and gospel. And um, in the latter half of this video, really get practical and say, how does this understanding of law and gospel impact how we relate with our spouses? How does, how does it impact our parenting, uh, our friendships, other relationships? And so uh, I'm going to start off first by reading and talking about how Christ fulfilled the law. What do, we, what do we mean when we say Christ fulfilled the law? Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 5, at his Sermon on the Mount, starting in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish or to destroy the law or the prophets. So that's the two categories of the Old Testament. Don't think I've come to destroy or abolish the law. For I have not come to abolish or destroy them, but to fulfill them. And so he's talking about larger categories of the law and the prophets there in verse 17. Then verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. And so there's, there's not an abolishing, not a destroying of the law. There's continuity of the law. But in some sense, he has fulfilled it. That's what he says here. He, is he will fulfill it. He's come to fulfill it. So what, what, do, we, what do we mean by that? How do we think through these things? Um, I'd like to talk just a few minutes about how the New Testament fills this out. How, how can we think about this? Uh, to borrow some language from Sinclair Ferguson, it can be helpful for us to take Christ's fulfillment and, as it were, put it through a prism so that the light is cast in various aspects of the spectrum, and we can, in, we can individually see the different ways that Christ has fulfilled the law. And we, we know, um, number one, that he's fulfilled the law as far as its end or its goal, its telos. We can say that he has teleologically fulfilled the law. He is the goal of the law. He is, his very being among us embodies the law, and that's, that's part of what John is getting at in John 117, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Christ. It's not an antithesis, right? Moses versus Christ, but it is an antithesis of shadow, of a type, and an antithesis between personality. He is the incarnationally embodying uh, fulfillment of the law. Uh, that's, we see that also in Romans 10, verse 4. We know Secondly, that Christ fulfilled the law by his uh, allegiance to it. He, he, what makes his fulfillment all, all more wonderful, his fulfillment of the law all the more wonderful, is that he was born under the law. Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, willingly submitting himself to the demands of the law. So he's the end of the law. He was personally allied to or had allegiance to the law. Number three, he fulfilled the law by expounding perfectly the contents of the law. His exposition of the will of God and, and the Old Testament 
clarifies for us exactly what God meant in the Ten Commandments. He shows us the true spiritual nature that was latent in the tablets of stone and shows how those are really meant to be applied to the inner life, not merely to externals, not merely to our actions. His exposition of the law of God, and we could say his intensification of it, um, is not a contrast of righteousness in the Old Testament versus righteousness in the New. It's a contrast between the true interpretation of the law and then the pharisaical interpretation of what righteousness is, right? You hear, you hear Jesus say again and again, you've heard it said, well, he's quoting, he's, he's pointing to the Pharisees there and their tradition, their many laws that they were heaping up on people. They had hundreds of laws about things you can't do and you can do. And Jesus is saying, you've heard it said this, but the law of God actually says this. You've heard it said that you, uh, you, can't, uh, you shall not murder or you'll be liable to judgment. Um, but the law actually says, if you're angry at somebody in your heart, you're guilty of murder. And so his, he fulfills the law by expounding its true content. Fourth, Christ fulfills the law by bearing the penalties of the law. We can see that in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, I'll read uh, 10 through 14. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be anyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Christ became the curse for us so that we can be freed from the penalties of the law. He has fulfilled the law's demands for righteousness by taking away the penalty that we so deserved, that all in Adam deserve because of his guilt that's imputed to us. So Christ fulfills the law by bearing its penalties. Likewise, we could say, number five, that Christ fulfills the law in the sense that he fulfills the civil aspects of the law, right? This is, uh, we know that the law was, um, was used as a tutor, as a guide to guide the people of Israel along until the promised seed of Abraham could be born. It was keeping together a nation of Israel so that the, the line uh, of the seed of the woman might be held until Christ came. And, and we see that these restraints of this civil law, the separations between Jew and Gentile, those are torn down. These civil laws are gone. We can see something of that in Ephesians 2, 14 through 17. His fulfillment of the civil aspect of the law enables the barrier to be broken down so that Jews and Gentiles can be made one in him. And sixth, there is a ceremonial fulfillment of the law. He fulfills the ceremonial aspects of the law. The, he was the substance to which the old sacrifices in the Old Testament were pointing to. They were merely shadows of what was greater to come. We can see this fulfillment in the language of Colossians 2, 16 and 17, where there's the observance of days and feasts and festivals and things like that. And it says, no, the true substance has come. Those things have passed away. They were shadows. 
He's talking about the ceremonial aspects of the law, not the moral law of God. God's unchanging moral character has not fluctuated. His standard of righteousness has not fluctuated. But the ceremonial aspects of the law have been fulfilled. Those are shadows that are no longer needed because the true substance of those things have come. We can see something of this in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18. Uh, there, and also Hebrews 9 Verse 18, there's no longer a sacrifice needed for sin. So to review, we have Christ of the, as, the, as the end of the law, the telos. He is the teleological end of the law. We see that Christ fulfills the law by his personal allegiance to it. We see that Christ fulfills the law by expounding its true content for us. He fulfills the law by bearing the penalties of the law, becoming the curse for us. And then he fulfills the civil and the ceremonial aspects of the law for us. And so now, now that Christ has fulfilled these things for us, uh, I want to take some of these understandings of law and gospel and how the two relate and apply them practically. And Pastor Brandon is going to show uh, uh, some ways how it impacts our relationships with our friends. Yeah, so when we think about friendship, particularly Christian friendship, what is it? What does the Bible have to say about it? And how does the law and gospel uh, help us understand how to live as Christians? Uh, in a friendship. And I think we need to understand a Christian friendship first is a matter of liberty. There's nothing in the Bible that tells me that I have to be close accountability partners with Pastor John English Lee. Now that's true, and I love John English, and he is my close friend, because it's good for me. I hope it's good for you, brother. Absolutely. But there's nothing, there's no law binding me to be his accountability partner or be a close friend to him. Therefore, it's a gift. It's a free gift that Christ gives, gives to us that we may edify and build one another up in Christ and sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron to be more like Christ. And so that's the first way we should be viewing Christian friendship as a gift to make us more like Jesus. Therefore, a Christian friendship is a covenant that we enter into with one another by which we promise to do one another good. Well, how do we do one another good? I think it's important that we learn how to live under grace in Christian friendship. Let's look at Romans chapter 6, verse 14. It says, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What does that mean? What does that mean that we're not under law, but under grace? And how do we live in a grace-saturated uh, relationship to Christ and to his people? Well, I think one way we do that in Christian friendship is this. We don't confuse the two. Last week we talked about, and John English just taught us uh, very well on how, the law, how Christ fulfills the law. We must understand what is the gospel. The gospel is the free gift of grace offered to us for salvation. What that means is Christ loves us freely apart from what we do or what we don't do. Whether good or bad, evil or good, we, Christ doesn't love us according to our works. He loves us in spite of them, in fact. And so when we think about a Christian friendship under grace, what we must know is it doesn't matter what the other person do. I am bound to love them freely in Christ because of what Christ has done for me, not because of how they treat me within that friendship. And so it's a gift, and we love them freely. And so um, by way of example, we, if a friend comes to me and he says, well, brother, you didn't like my Facebook post, um, or you didn't um, come to my child's birthday party, um, no matter the reason, I didn't sin against that brother. I didn't lie to him. I didn't steal from him. I didn't hate him without cause. I haven't actually broken God's law. And so we must understand clearly it wasn't a sin. And so I'm 
free to come to the birthday party or I'm free to like a post on social media, but I'm not bound by the law. Therefore, I haven't sinned. And if I haven't sinned, there should be no offense. And so I'm free to love that brother by liking the post or not liking the post. I'm free to come to the party or not come to the party. That should not be a means, in my opinion, to cause friction within a Christian friendship. But rather, we should look to Christ and seek to do one another good by encouraging one another, by, keep, by, by rebuking one another sin, by encouraging one another and keeping God's law as a rule of life, um, and by looking to Jesus by faith. And when we fail in those things, we should continuously encourage, reproof, admonish one another to be more like Jesus in our Christian friendships. So let me give you another, uh, uh, propose another scenario and see how you're going to work through this. Okay. Uh, you and I are friends, and we go uh, out to eat, and um, I take you to a steakhouse, mm-hmm. and you order a, a, a medium rare steak that still has a little bit of blood coming out of it. And I look at you and I say, brother, you are in sin. Don't you know the Bible says you can't eat blood? It's clear in Leviticus. Mm. Um, how does the law and gospel help us navigate that scenario? Well, I think first um, we must understand, well, one, that's not a sin. I think it's important that we rightly define the law. The, Christ, like Johnny has just taught us, he fulfilled the ceremonial aspects of the law. I can freely eat meat. We see that in Acts chapter 10 and other places. I can freely eat meat with the blood still in it if I, if I so choose. Praise the Lord. Um, but we must also understand Christian liberty and Christian love. If me eating meat is causing my brother to stumble in this moment, moment I'm not going to eat the meat. I know in Christ that I am free, but Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter eight, chapters 8 through 10, the law of love, how we should in our hearts give up our Christian liberty, not our consciences, but give up our liberty to love our brother while not misinterpreting and mis- misunderstanding the law. And so what I really would do is I would seek over time to encourage you in the right application of the law, but I don't need to win that battle in that moment. What I need to do is love you and freely put the meat away, but clearly state my opinion and my uh, position on that, but make it clear. We disagree, but I love you, and that's okay. You're very good. You say, brother, have you not read the confession of faith that our church church espouses? That's what you say. That's you right. smack me upside the head. That's right. So um, I'm going to take the law and gospel and, and switch gears a little bit to a different relationship to parenting, how we think through how the law and gospel is useful for me as a parent as I'm trying to help raise up my children. And it's useful, the law particularly is useful as I'm thinking through the same categories that Brandon was thinking through, what is sin and what is not. Because not everything that annoys me is sin. Mm-hmm. That's really, really important. Amen. Just because your children are loud doesn't mean they're in sin. Just because you prefer quiet doesn't mean that their being loud is necessarily sin, right? Now, you can make your expectations and your house rules known, and then at that point, that standard, if it's reasonable and biblical, then that standard becomes a moral standard for your children to honor you by upholding the fifth commandment. But just because uh, you think something is wrong doesn't necessarily mean it's sinful. And this is important for me to teach my children as well. I have had, on more than one occasion, a son of mine run up because there's a fight that has broken out because one of them is building Legos in an incorrect way. <laughs> He's building Legos the wrong way, Dad. Right? That child may or may not have a whole lot of resemblance to me. Uh, and the other child that's building them in a very creative way 
may or may not have a whole lot of likeness uh, to my wife, who's very creative. And so uh, it's good for me to train my son in that way and say, listen, just because he does something differently than you does not necessarily mean that it is sinful. Mm -hmm. Is he sinning against you by mismatching the Legos or whatever the game is, whatever the toy is? Um, This is important to discern what is actually righteous and what is indifferent, right? It's not sinful to make a mess out of the Legos um, or to build them in a strange way. So the law is important for us to discern what is the nub, what is true, worthy of what's actual offense, and what is something where we need to give them charity and liberty. Um, And it's also important for us to remember the gospel uh, because we can be tempted to think if I just press the law hard enough on my children, then they will begin to obey from a heart of love and obedience. Mm-hmm. And we can indirectly um, lead our children to think if they just obeyed enough, then, then they might have the grace of the gospel. Then they might receive grace. And we have to remember the gospel. The gospel says, no, we were, we were all sinners And Christ, out of his own free will, has chosen to unite us with him, to effectually call us, and in our union with him, grant us the gift of faith and repentance. And we need the same thing for our children, which means we can't press the law hard enough to affect their heart change. We cannot press them with the threatenings of the law enough to make them have a heart that loves God. And so that means we need to start our whole parenting endeavor from the position of dependence upon our knees in prayer. And parenting is, in a, in a large sense, won or lost before the battle arrives. It's won or lost in the prayer closet because we have to be completely dependent upon the movement of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we remind them of the law. We tell them of God's holy standard of judgment. And we tell them about the consequences if they disobey in our house, if they dishonor their parents. Absolutely. But we do not trust in the mechanism of the law to save our children. And our goal in parenting is not, this this is another important thing that I often forget, our goal in parenting of reminding them of the standard and, and enforcing the consequences is not to bring about our convenience. Right? We tend to think, gosh, if they would just obey, if they would just do what I told them, my life would be so much easier. This house would not be so messy. It would not be so loud. There wouldn't be all these fights with their siblings. My life would be so much better. Do you see how everything in that is curved in on itself? No, we have to remember the gospel mm-hmm. is that God is working even through our children's disobedience in one measure, to sanctify us. It's for our good that we go through this parenting process and not that God zaps our three-year-old with faith and perfect sanctification. As wonderful as we think that might be, um, there is a process of maturation, and we are there to be guides through this process. And so we have to remember the Lord's work in the process. The goal of the process is to honor the Lord to glorify the Lord by being faithful to His commands, and we leave the fruit in His hands, Amen. and we pray for His efficacious work to that end. Amen.
So that's parenting and relationships. Um, Brandon's going to talk a little bit about law and gospel in our marriage. Yeah, so let's go back to um, Romans chapter 6 first before we go to Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 14 again, it says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 5 and look at these famous verses on the marital relationships and the, how the relationships practically, how they should look. Verse 22 says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. Also, Christ is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water, washing of water with the word. What people often do in marital disputes is they go right to well, she needs to respect me more, or he needs to love me more. But I want you to notice two things about that as we think about Romans 6, 14. The Bible actually never commands a husband to command his wife to, love, to respect him. And the Bible never commands a wife to command her husband to love her. The Bible is the authority. The Bible commands us to do these things. The command for us is to, regardless of what our spouse does, to freely love and respect one another. And that's what Romans 6 is talking about. People often go right to the law. They go right to Ephesians 5. Look at this role. She's not respecting me. If only she would respect me more, I would be a better husband. If she would just show me more respect in front of the kids, I would be a better leader and father. But what that shows and proves is a poor relationship in some respect with Christ or a misunderstanding of law and gospel. The law condemns you. Your wife could never do anything well enough for it to change your heart to love her or Christ better. She couldn't. Not really. But Christ did. He fulfilled the law, and through the gospel, he offers you free grace and gives you his spirit that enables you to be content and keep the law. And so it's not your wife that's going to satisfy you. It's Christ, looking to Christ and his perfect righteousness in your place and his love for you is all the satisfaction, all the motivation you need to love your wife. And that's freedom. That's you being free, no matter what my wife does, to love her freely. That's living under grace. No matter what the, spou the other spouse does, what, no matter what your spouse does, you love her or him freely. Whether you get respected or you get love. Christ is enough. You're keeping the 10th commandment because you're content in Christ and with Christ in everything that he promises you and all his promises are yes and amen in him. Therefore, I don't need love from my spouse. It's nice when I get it. I don't need my wife to respect me. I want her to, and it's good for her to respect me. It shows Christ, the picture of Christ in the church, but I don't need it to love her. That's law, gospel, and marriage. You should not steal, in a sense, love from your spouse or require it from them to perform an act of love towards them because Christ is enough. That's freedom in the law and gospel. That's living under grace and under law. Here's why that's important. Because what you're doing, if you add this legal element to marriage, meaning I'll take my wife. Sorry, honey. If Abby respects me, 
I'm going to take her on a date. Or if Abby respects me, I'm going to speak nice about her to my friends. Or I'm going to buy her a gift. If she does this, do you see that? The force of my love is from the law. If she does this, then I will love. That's a legal relationship. It's transactional. That's right. And what does the Bible say? Back to Romans 6, 14. Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law. Well, if you put your relationship back under the law in marriage, in any relationship, then you are giving, giving sin the ability to master you and that person. Because the power of sin is the law. What did John English teach us last week? And just now, sin reveals the law. Paul says, if it were not for the law, I would not know what it was to covet. And so as I put this legal requirement, I'm pronouncing judgment of a sense over my spouse because she can't keep it. She can't keep the law of my heart. She can't even keep God's law faithfully without the, the Holy Spirit and um, the scriptures and the encouragement from Christ and his word. And so why in the world would I heap laws upon her that she cannot keep or faithfully keep? What that's going to do is make me continue to feel self-righteous. Well, she's not doing what I'm going to do. She's doing what I'm asking her to do, so she's a bad spouse. She's a bad wife. And I'm somehow a good husband because she can't keep my law. That's important. We need to freely love our spouses as under grace and not under law so that we would not heap sin upon them and, make sin and, make and bring sin back into our marriage to be master over us in some way. Very good. Um, before I close, um, I've been thinking about something for my class. I'm teaching a class on the law um, next week, and I've been thinking about something. The Bible gives us... Uh, I think a multiplicity of motivations for obedience and holiness. And uh, I think that the verse that Brandon has been citing from Romans, that we're not under law, we're under grace, needs to be kind of the dominant mindset for Christians. We are not under law, we're under grace. So we can, we can think about the law, and we can think... This is the standard of holiness. I owe God something. This is my duty. Therefore, like a good soldier, I'm going to press ahead and just work and do my job. I'm going to check the boxes. And if we keep pressing that upon us, like this is my duty. This is what I have to do to be a good Christian. This is what I, you see how I've turned even the grace of the law, I've turned it into a burden that will crush me. I'm not performing my duty. When I fail, if I'm accurately reading the law, I'm not doing my duty. Therefore, it, it depresses me. It crushes me. And it will send me into a spiral of a lack of assurance where I doubt whether I was ever saved because I keep screwing up. Or it will send me into a spiral of self-righteousness. All right? I, I am a good fulfiller of the law. I am a good Pharisee. Look at all my righteousness. I am a good fulfiller of duty. No, 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 no. The whole point of the gospel is Christ fulfilled the law, and I am free. I am free from the burden of the law. It's not my performance. It's not how wonderful I am. It's not how sinless I am. It's not how holy I am. It's Christ. Christ is the whole reason that I can stand before God. He's the whole reason that I've been adopted, that I've been brought into the family of God. I've been united to him, been, been given his spirit of adoption that helps me walk in holiness. And it's out of that spirit of love, right? We're under grace. We're not under law. It's not out of a sense of duty primarily. It is primarily out of a sense of gratitude, overflowing love. The more I think about Jesus, 
the more that fans the flames of devotion and love in my heart, and that compels me. Mm. His Spirit within me is driving me. I want to love Jesus by demonstrating my devotion to Him through obedience to His law. You see the, the difference there. There's, there's these two paths. One is duty-driven that can tend towards a self-focused performance of the law, and one is just constantly looking to Jesus. And because you're looking to Jesus, that is, uh, and by looking, I'm not thinking like having a picture of Jesus on the wall. I'm thinking about meditating upon what the Bible reveals to us about Christ's nature and his work. What has Jesus done on my behalf? That's what looking to Jesus does. That's what, that's what I'm supposed to do. Thinking and meditating deeply upon the glory that is revealed of Christ in his word, the more I do that, the more I think about him, not this theological category of a Christ, but the person of Jesus and what he has done for his people, mm. meditating upon the glorious person of Christ, then I will be propelled by love and th- thankfulness and gratitude because of what he's done for us towards my obedience to him. And so I want to I want you to think about that and emphasize that and and think about your life. Are you doing the things that you're doing? Your your acts of devotion, are you going through the day doing your job, do, doing everything throughout the day? Are you doing it primarily out of a sense of duty to God, as if God is this harsh taskmaster? Because there's danger in that. Hmm. It's not wrong to say that the laws are duty. That is true. But if you're only thinking of law in terms of duty, then you will be very strongly tempted to be the older brother in the prodigal son story that says, for all these years, I slaved for you, and you never slaughtered a calf for me. You, you will have a self-righteousness that will bubble up within you, or you'll go the other way and you'll be completely depressed and say, I, I, don't, I don't know that I'm even a Christian. I keep, I keep failing. I, I can't do this. I know that that's my stand. I know that Christians should not get angry at their children, and I, I yelled at my kids again. I, I don't know that I, I, I need to go talk to the pastor. I need to get baptized again. I don't know that I'm even a Christian. That, that, that's what's going to happen. So thinking through these law gospel categories and remembering a gospel-based, a Christ-based motivation of love to the law, right? That's, to use older words, that is evangelical, that is gospel-ish obedience to the law. That's what we want. We, won't, we don't want a legal, hard, don't you know that this is what Christians should do? We don't want a legal pressing of the law upon us. And that's true of that's that's what our pastors aspire to. That's what we want to do. That's what we want to teach from the pulpit. That's what we want to teach in the classrooms. That's what we want to be as husbands and fathers. And it's only because of the grace of Christ that any of us will be able to grow in those areas. And so that's my prayer for us. I'm gonna I'm gonna close us in prayer, asking that God would help us to have this gospel obedience, this evangelical obedience to the law. Holy Father, forgive us where we have failed you. Help us to remember that Christ is the perfect one who died in the place of his people and has completely washed them of their sins and has given to them, imputed to them, his very perfect righteousness that we might stand spotless and without blemish before you, God. Help us to remember remember that it is his righteousness and his alone that makes us perfect before you. Help us to be propelled 
by this sacrifice uh, towards uh, obedience to the law, not not out of primarily out of a sense of duty, but out of a sense of gratitude and thankfulness for what Christ has done in our place. Help us to treat one another in our relationships as under grace and not under law. Help us to not have rigid, legal, harsh, transactional spirits with those people around us, but help us to have soft and gentle, hospitable, forgiving, long-suffering spirits, willing to um, bend very far for the sake of loving another. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If you have any further questions or topics about Law Gospel that you'd like to be discussed, please respond or comment in this video. Email me or, or Brandon. Uh, we would love to maybe have a, another video where we answer some questions if you have any. So send those to us. Thank you.